at the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. Welcome everyone um, back to another episode of the Curiosity Habit uh, where we talk about the people behind the research. And today I have a pleasure to have with me Dr. Ann Kinsella, uh, who's been a colleague at Western University for a long time and from whom I have learned a lot about qualitative research and epistemologies and very interesting topics around that. Anne is a professor at the Institute of Health Sciences Education at McGill University. Welcome Anne and thank you for being with us today. Oh, thank you, Syra. It's, it's really an honor to be here. Thank you for the invitation. And I'm very excited to get to learn, learn a little bit more about your story, because I know a lot about your research, but I don't think we have had a conversation about what drives you, like what, what brought you here. And, and my first question is actually that, like, what's the story of the, your journey? Like, what made you made the decision to become a researcher in general, regardless of the topic? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. And I don't think it was ever a conscious decision to become a researcher, but more um, that I've just been following my questions over time. So um, even as a, as a university student, I was interested in education. And I remember being in a secondhand bookstore and I saw this book, Experience and Education by John Dewey. And I started reading it and I started to think about how really education could be so much more than what I was experiencing at the time. So I was experiencing that sort of banking model, um, deposits of information and memorizing and regurgitation. And I really deeply started to think at that point about practice and experience and how we're constantly learning from experience. Um, and that was really the introduction to me for me of becoming interested in education. Uh, it's it just recently that I've sort of reflected back to make that link on that very first book uh, by John Dewey. Mm -hmm. And as it turns out, John Dewey's um, educational philosophy has been uh, a thread throughout a lot of my work and um, over time. So um, you are also an occupational therapist. So I, I wanna know what's the connection between that professional aspect of your life and your interest in education, but at the professional level, how the two of them are connected? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually think that a lot of the educational questions that arise for health practitioners um, across disciplines. So sometimes we look at them in a siloed kind of way. And, you know, we look at certain, we look at them in medicine, we look at them in occupational therapy, we look at them in nursing. But I think a lot of the big questions um, are transdisciplinary. So uh, throughout my whole career, really, I've been looking at educational topics or issues that I think span different disciplines. Um, so, okay, going back to your question about the link between occupational therapy and um, I worked as an occupational therapist in Northern Ontario when I first uh, graduated as an, um, as an occupational therapist on a, a Northern bursary program. 
And when I was up there, I was having to learn a lot in a remote area. And I was practicing, I was having many opportunities to learn on the spot through my experience. Um, and it was then that I really became aware of the importance of reflection in my own practice and how, how much more I could learn through reflection, reflecting on the errors that occurred or on the uncertainties that arose or on the relationships with my patients or on interactions with colleagues. So there were so many things in practice emerging that provided these really fruitful opportunities for learning. And that started my interest in reflective practice. That is intriguing. And I didn't know that that's the place where everything started for you in terms of reflection, research and reflection. Was it a particular experience or a, a moment with someone that made you realize that? Mm, that's a really good question. I'm trying to think of a, a perhaps a pivotal moment. I was really interested also in patient education as a practitioner. And I felt that really a lot of the work that I was doing as a therapist was around providing education, um, sometimes to colleagues about aspects of uh, occupation with the people that I was working with, and sometimes with um, patients as well and their families. So I was surprised by how much of the practice itself entailed, in my view, good practice entailed a lot of providing education um, to others and sharing knowledge, sharing information. And so I started my master's degree in adult education because of that. And at first I was looking at patient education within adult education. Um, but then it, I discovered, then I read The Reflective Practitioner by Donald Shun while I was going through this master's program. And I felt that it really gave me a language for articulating these um, indeterminate zones of practice he talk, that he talks about in his writing that I had experienced, but I didn't have a language for before that. Hmm. It sounds that reading is really big in your life. Is this, yes. <laughs> is this something like you're always quoting books and even in our offline conversations. Is this something that uh, came up from your family? Like where, how did you gain that passion for reading and being so interested in books? Yeah, I think I, I have always loved reading. I have always loved reading since I was a child. And I often have curiosities. I love the name of your podcast, Curiosity Habit. And um, I find books are probably the main way, the main spot that I go to, to learn. So I think maybe that also reflects, relates to my interest in reflective practice around uh, reading different theoretical perspectives, reading uh, different ways of articulating issues or what's happening. Um, so I, I have found I loved graduate school because it was an unfolding of learning a completely new language and way of, um, way of thinking. Right. So in relation to your interest in uh, reflective practice, like reflection is, is a very important word. And I think we talk a lot about it in health professions education. Uh, and we try to get our heads around it. And I'm not sure we have given the, the justice that it deserves. And I was wondering what has been 
the challenges that you have faced in doing this kind of research that for some people is hard to grapple with? I think one of the challenges being in a in a in the health professions and being interested in something that's quite intangible is um, explaining it to people or justifying that this is a real uh, legitimate area of study and that reflective practice is a lot more than um, just kind of a lay understanding of reflection. Um, Donald Shun and the work on reflective practice really is a whole way of thinking about epistemology or knowledge. And that part of the um, that part of the theorizing about the work isn't always taken into account. Mm -hmm. He has a very simple definition of reflective practice as a dialogue of thinking and doing through which I become more skillful as a practitioner. Mm -hmm. But underneath that, there are a lot of um, different theoretical perspectives and that um, and philosophical perspectives. And that was actually what I unpacked in my in my doctoral work. So my, my doctoral work was really an examination of the philosophical underpinnings of reflective practice as it relates to how we conceive of knowledge in the professions. Oh, wow. Okay, and so, so I, I think you say it really nicely, which is like, it's intangible. Uh, and therefore that's the challenge of kind of conveying that to people. On the flip side, uh, despite those challenges, what has been like a, a very, um, gratifying moment that this research has given you? Wow, that's a, that's a big question. <laughs> yeah, I think that really in, in looking at reflective practice, I've come to see it as a continuum. So I've talked about reflection as that practical, um, rational kind of reflection, more embodied kind of reflection, critical reflection and critical reflexivity, um, as well as mindfulness. So out of that full continuum of reflection come so many possibilities for engagement in different kinds of research or different, um, different educational problems or issues. So I think, I think what has been really rewarding for me has been just being open to the questions that arise as I undertake research or work with graduate students in their research and the unfolding of the reflective and probably the reflection in the research itself. Yeah. So I find I'm often surprised at the direction that, that um, a research project research project unfolds mm -hmm. and that sometimes just really being open to whatever is coming up and emerging uh, can be so fruitful and so interesting in terms of allowing, um, allowing a, new, um, a new contribution to, to reveal itself, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, totally. I'm thinking like being one of your graduate students might be such a fascinating experience, but also probably a little bit intimidating. How do you engage your students in in being open to these questions, uh, despite the intimidation factor that they may arise, how do you help them? Wow, well, I think, um, I don't think I'm intimidating, Syra, but- <laughs> No, the topic, I meant the, the, the topic, topic of yeah, research. Yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, it's a good question. And I, when I think about the most rewarding aspects of my career, really it is uh, working with graduate students and then seeing them take ideas that we've started to, to work with and take them to new heights or new levels or into new areas. Um, so I've really been privileged to work with a lot of very talented um, students. In terms of working with students, let me think about that question. I think I really just try to encourage um, encourage them to live the questions too, you know, to to not worry if they don't if they read something like a piece of theory and they don't understand it, to not worry too much, to just read it lightly and see what it is in that theory that resonates with them or speaks to them or speaks to their work. Um, but that's a great answer. I would like to okay. just, just focus on, on that piece um, of help, like giving the message to your students that it's okay to not understand something, especially when yeah. you go into a PhD program, you think you have to know it all and you, you think that you have to understand everything, but it must yeah. be so relieving to just hear from your supervisor. It's okay. So I appreciate your, your take on that one. Okay. Thanks, Aaron. I guess just relating to that is that I, I have been teaching a course on um, philosophical foundations of qualitative research for about 10 years. And every day on the first day of the class, I say to students, you're going to be introduced to lots of different philosophers who you may have never heard of. And it's okay to, if you take away 10% mm -hmm. of what you might read in a primary text, that's fine. And, you know, you can also read a secondary text to help you interpret what you've read. So I really, I really try, try to emphasize that. Uh, that's, that's a really good thing for everybody who's been a supervisor to keep in mind, not just for this topic, yeah. but in general. Yeah. I think another key thing that I, I, I try to emphasize with the students is to anchor two or three key concepts only. So I think sometimes when students are, are working on their dissertation, for instance, they're interested in 20 or 30 different concepts or um, avenues of exploration or theories. And so I really try to focus on anchoring, you know, one overarching methodology with affiliated methods and, and uh, underpinning that with some good theoretical work that informs that methodology. But then in terms of the constructs, you know, we always talk about a focused research question. So having a focused research question and, um, and keeping it relatively simple without, you know, throwing everything in the kitchen sink inside of it, which sometimes is a, a tendency of, uh, of all of us in our excitement to explore different concepts. So there is kind of, I think there is an art to bringing two or three uh, constructs or concepts into an investigation or two, one or two theoretical perspectives that can inform the work. Um, and sometimes we have to just, we have to let go of a lot of what we also are interested in, but may not be quite relevant to our work. Oh, yeah, for sure. I've been there. So I imagine many of our listeners will relate to that idea of being interested in everything, but having to focus. And it's good to have a supervisor who can tell you, okay, this is the amount of concepts you're allowed to have, <laughs> at least giving you some parameters. 
So I would like to change gears a, li a little bit. We talked about what inspired you, uh, your journey into reflection, reflective practice. And I want to talk a little bit about your career and your reflections on what you have achieved so far. So I, I was wondering, um, reflecting back in your career, what expectations did you have about being a researcher that up to now you have found differ from reality? Is there something in there that you initially thought this is what it means to be a researcher and now you realize I was not really exactly what I was imagining? Wow, that's such a good question, Sarah. I think uh, one thing that I really, because my PhD and my master's are in education and social science, and my background is in a health profession, I've been working in this space of interdisciplinarity. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that at the beginning of my career, I really um, understood what that might mean in terms of um, the art of almost dancing between fields and knowing how much to bring in from different fields to make a coherent uh, research project. So that has been one thing that I, I didn't anticipate. I think another thing was I didn't really think at all about getting money <laughs> for my research. <laughs> so I think I was pretty naive when I started my academic position. It wasn't on my mind. It was the, it was the scholarly work, the love of the scholarship, the love of, um, and because my work has a philosophical bent, a lot of my, my work has a theoretical or philosophical aspect to it. So there may be, there, there, there is kind of a, a a conversation between uh, theoretical or philosophical ideas and empirical inquiry. And, um, and so I didn't really have a name for some of what I did early on in my career, but uh, Stephen Camus and Bill Green have coined this term around philosophical empirical inquiry. And I think that quite a bit of my work falls in that kind of a domain. So that was another piece I don't think I was um, especially conscious about. Um, no, or just um, how unpredictable um, an academic career is. You Sometimes you publish something and, and you don't know whether it will get taken up and you think, oh, maybe it won't at all. And it really does get taken up a lot by other people. And sometimes you publish something that you think everybody's going to want to read and you find only a few people are reading it. So it's, there's an unpredictability and a sort of a serendipity aspect that I, I never really thought about. Um, I yeah. struggle with that actually, because there are, some, though, there are some papers that you invest so much you put your heart in and then you realize, oh, people are not reading it. How do you come to terms with that? Or how, how have you been able to accept the fact that this is unpredictable and then it is what it is? <laughs> you just have to keep going. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I think I don't really have an expectation around what will happen with the, with the work. I think I just um, put it out there and uh, sometimes I'm very surprised in, in how it gets taken up. Um, Alan Pittman and I edited a book on phrenesis uh, in professional education and um, in, in professional practice. And it's uh, really been highly cited. And 
taken up in ways that we didn't anticipate or or expect. Um, and then there, yeah, there's there. I think I'm just learning to roll with the punches. I guess <laughs> just roll with things and and be pleasantly surprised when something um, um, gets airtime and and just let it go if it doesn't. Right. Well, I have to learn from you on that one. I'm still trying. <laughs> so you 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 mentioned something interesting to me, which is uh, the, exp- the something that you didn't anticipate having to get money, and <laughs> and I'm not sure that in a PhD program you work a lot about the the grant writing grant aspect, or you get awareness of that because you're kind of focused in doing your thing. And I was wondering, like, is is what it is difficult to get the money? What has been your approach to get funding? And you have been very successful in your career to get funding for the philosophical topics that you work with. That's number one. And number two, how do you celebrate success when you get a grant? Well, okay. Um, So number one, I think we all have lots of rejection letters, although, you know, we look like we're successful and we are successful at times. Um, I think in terms of the philosophical aspects, I have started framing part of my work as philosophical empirical inquiry in my last grant I did. So there's always an empirical piece uh, to the work that I've been funded for. Um, so there, so I guess just finding the language to name what it is that I'm doing um, and to have a, a bit of both pieces, an empirical piece as well as uh, a place where there's room for exploration of philosophical. Some of the philosophical work I've done has not has not been funded. Um, you know, I've just done it. It doesn't take a lot of money, you know, <laughs> but it takes time. So I guess they say time is money. So in <laughs> some ways, um, then in terms of how do I celebrate if I get a grant, I usually call a friend um, and I used to always call my dad and my, my father um, was a brilliant man who would get every answer on Jeopardy. But oh, yeah, I know, really. <laughs> but he never had the opportunity for higher education and he always uh, was my biggest champion. And so it used to be as soon as I got a grant, I would call my dad, but um, he passed away a couple of years ago. So now I have a little toast to him <laughs> still. Oh, that's nice. Occurs. Yeah. And now I, I actually, it's my students who are getting bigger grants. Um, so it's wonderful to see, you know, now five of my students um, have completed and are professors and three of them are now um, associate professors. And so uh, there's something really rewarding about seeing students. And I think that they were prepared a bit more around um, the need to get grants. I think the culture has changed from when I did my PhD. Yeah, right. And and I agree. Sometimes the, the successes of those that work with you feels even more exciting than your own for some reason. So thank you for sharing that. I was also wondering... Uh, throughout your career, like we all learn new skills, new habits, new things. What has been a skill or a habit that you didn't anticipate having to learn, but that has become very critical in your career? Hmm. You're really making me think, Cyrus. (laughs) (laughs) 
doesn't have to be research skills, any kind of skill that has been helpful. I think um, learning to block out the world and set a time aside, uh, so to speak. So getting up early, I, I didn't used to get up early until I was a PhD student and needed to get up early to finish my readings really early. <laughs> so I think um, getting up really early and having a block of, of work time in the mornings has been, um, and, and blocking out the world, holding the world at bay, so to speak, has been one of my approaches to um, academic life. So you, you, to this day, you get up early and you spend a few hours reading, that's, that's what you mean? I don't always spend a few hours reading these days. I wish I had the time, but I get up early and I start, I often will have a couple hours of writing time blocked in the morning before my day starts or early in the day, even in my work day. Um, that's been one strategy, I guess, that I've used to um, keep times for that deep intellectual attentive thought that's required, I think, to produce good scholarship. Right, oh, that's, uh, you're very disciplined, especially for writing every day for two hours. <laughs> Kudos to you, but great approach. The other thing that I was wondering is like you, you said that you work in Northern Ontario and then I imagine you came to Western and then now you're in McGill. Like what has driven you the movement? What has driven the movement for you? Uh, so I went to Northern Ontario to work as a, as a therapist. And um, actually the reason that I went to, I went to Timmins and the reason that I went to Timmins was uh, as a teenager, I was a camp counselor in Moussini with, um, yeah, up in, uh, in a Cree nation in Moosonee and I really loved the outdoors and, and being up north. And so I decided to go up there when I graduated and there were incentive programs because they're under-resourced areas. So that brought me to the north. Um, then I came back to London to do a PhD uh, in education here and, uh, and then I, uh, had a position uh, at Western, as you know, where with where I was kind of spread around in different places, but I was involved in the graduate program in health professions education and in the School of OT. And I was fortunate to um, be affiliated with the Center for Educational Research and Innovation that you're a part of in Lorelei and Chris Watling. Um, then, a wonderful opportunity arose. So I've had a passion for educational research throughout my, throughout my career. And um, at McGill, there has been a center of medical education that recently transformed into an institute of health sciences education. And they were looking for a professor. And um, I just followed my, my passion for educational research. And I put in a, an application and here I am uh, at McGill. So I, I moved here in January of this year during, uh, during a pandemic. Um, and so far, it's just been an amazing opportunity to just continue to deepen the, um, the connections and the passion around educational research. Yeah, that's great. Um, and I was been, I've been following some of the news that come out and it, it seems that everybody's very happy with you over there. So um, I wish you all the success there. And I'm curious actually to know 
what are you doing these days and what's your next curiosity? Okay, so I have just been working on a book on um, embodiment and professional education. And uh, I guess embodiment has been, I wrote a paper on embodied reflection, which was one of those surprising papers that really took off. Um, and so this whole idea of embodied knowledge has been one that has been uh, of interest to me for some time. One of my doctoral students, uh, Helen Harrison, is working on uh, embodiment and uh, peer mentorship education. And so we've done some deep dives into Merleau-Ponty's work um, on the phenomenology of perception and embodied ways of, of thinking and being. So um, Stephen Loftus and I have just uh, edited a book on, on, on that topic. And I'm interested in pursuing some more empirical work that takes embodiment into account. So um, with embodied perspectives is the idea that the, the, the body is a means of perception in and of itself. And there, there are a lot of links with this idea of embodied knowledge um, with some of the thinkers that I was looking at earlier and who informed Donald Shun's work. So Michael Polanyi and the tacit dimension and Gilbert Ryle and his distinction between knowing how and knowing that. Um, I'm giving you a very long answer <laughs> to a, a quick question, but I, I'm really, really interested in embodied perspectives on knowledge as they relate to health professions education. And so that's one avenue that I'm, that I'm pursuing right now. Um, also the, uh, the book on phrenesis as professional knowledge. I'm working with a few groups that are undertaking some empirical work on phrenesis in, um, in the medical, in medical education. So uh, we uh, are, are starting to explore some, some funding options for some of that research. So that is a, a, a possible avenue going forward as well. Mm -hmm. I also have a doctoral student coming to work with me um, at McGill who is interested in um, the arts and humanities in the health professions as a mean of mitigating burnout. And the arts and humanities have been uh, an aspect of great interest to me over time. Um, and so I'm, I'm quite interested to see where we go with that research as well. Nice. So it looks like you're quite busy, even though you joined not too long ago. It's good for you. I have two more questions. And within the busyness of your life, um, what are your hobbies? I follow you in Facebook and the photos that you post from your hiking hikes are fantastic. So is hiking one of your your big hobbies and what else? Yeah, absolutely. I I I love I love going out in nature and just taking pictures of taking pictures of nature. I I I'm 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 really enjoying it up here um, just north of Montreal where I'm living right now. There's so many opportunities to be outdoors so I'm really I'm I'm getting back to skiing which I haven't done in a number of years um, hiking cycling um, I love uh, going to art galleries um, or pottery shows uh, I I kind of I, I just I love art um, and I'm very inspired by art uh, in my life and in in my work and research as well 
including arts-based methodologies, which I know you know a lot about, Syra. Um, yeah, I guess reading, I read a lot. I read too much, probably. <laughs> I love to read. Um, and I love yoga. Yoga's been a lifelong sort of companion for me. So I, uh, I have a regular yoga practice as well. That's good. I knew a, l a little bit about that. I didn't know how sporty you were. So when I go to visit, we might be doing some hiking. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> You're always welcome, Syrah. Thank you. So just to end, um, the, my final curiosity, just personally, is I usually ask people, like, if you hadn't been a researcher, what is the thing that you probably will be doing instead of being a researcher? If researcher was not an option at the beginning, what else could have been for you? I really love to write. Um, I think that writing, I mean, if, if I was independently wealthy, <laughs> perhaps <laughs> I, I probably would have chosen a career as a writer and an artist um, or a teacher. I think I, I really, I think I, I really love what I do because it does bring in aspects of yeah. all of these different aspects mm -hmm. um, to bear. But if you were to be an, an artist, what, what will it be? Painting, pottery? Probably painting. And uh, I have done some art, actually. I've done, oh. uh, I, I do some pen and ink kinds of work. Um, so I have some pieces um, that I have sold and <laughs> oh, wow. so, yeah so I really enjoy I really enjoy art a lot there's a lot of artists um, in my family as well so mm -hmm. probably painting as well multimedia I like abstract art as well so and I imagine it goes so well with your other hobbies like a place for meditation a place for reflecting so it's all tied together <laughs> absolutely yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much, Anne. This was very enjoyable. I appreciate you being with us today and for sharing all your wisdom as well. Syra, thank you so much. It's been uh, lovely to be here and um, I, I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you. And you're always welcome to come for a visit. <laughs> I think I, I self-invited myself, but yeah. we'll talk about that later. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Okay, thank, thank you everyone for listening and we'll see you in the next episode. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Syra Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.